Okay. Uh, I invite you right now to turn in your Bible on your vices or print it in your bulletin to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. Last week we began this incredible story that took place in the ancient kingdom of Persia. If you recall last week, we met King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who was throwing a huge party that lasted six months. I mean, it was a real blowout bash. He gave invitations to people great, to people small. He paraded his army before the people. He displayed his wealth. Now, the original readers would actually understand what this blowout was all about. Ahasuerus is rallying his people because he's about to go to war. He wants to take the Persian army to squash the upstart Greek states. His daddy actually failed, Daddy Darius, in the Battle of Marathon. So Ahasuerus, he's going to finish what his daddy started. Any of you heard of the Battle of Thermopylae? A couple hands, couple hands. It's actually one of the most famous battles in all of history. It's actually tilted the whole, the whole world scale where the Greeks began to become the upstart empire at this time. And it took place when about 7,000 Greeks stood in this narrow pass protecting their homeland. And they faced off against this army that was 15 to 30 times their size from the Persians. It was a final, famous final last stand. And they knew it. They knew they weren't going to win. Ahasuerus said to the guy Leonides of the Greeks, he said, hand over your weapons. And Leonides famously said, come and take them. At which point he was warned that they would blot out the sun with all the Persian arrows. To which Leonides said, great, I prefer to fight in the shade. It was quite a battle. And stand they did. The Persians won, but at great cost, because for three days, those 7,000 troops cut the Persian army to ribbons. They would invade with a beleaguered army, beaten and bruised. Ahasuerus would not last long in Greece. He would head back with his army, and disease and starvation wiped out most of the rest of them. Why the history lesson, Joel? I mention all this because there is a three-year time gap in between chapter 1 of Esther and chapter 2. Last week in chapter 1, we met a glad king who became quickly a mad king. In chapter 2, we're going to meet a bad king, but he's going to start off as a very sad king. Why, Joel? Well, in those three years between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he lost much of his army, lost much of his wealth. Oh, and now the king's remembering another loss too. Welcome to Esther chapter 2. Now hear the word of our God. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, 
a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge, of, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cos her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to hear, to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this communication from heaven. You want to show us wonderful things. You want to show us our Savior. And you want us to be set free, Lord, from sin and shame. I ask and pray you will do something momentous in the mere moments we have here so that your Son will be glorified in our lives. Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My world was shattered. I was torn apart. Like someone took a knife and drove it deep in my heart. When you walked out that door, I swore that I didn't care. But I lost everything, darling, then and there. Too strong to tell you I was sorry. Too proud to tell you I was wrong. I know that I was blind. And darling, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you and you'd stay.
actually saying the rest because a few were looking alarmed like that was autobiographical. <laughs> or perhaps you were just thinking I have lost it at that point. Uh, in either case, that was a famous pop hit of Cher when I was growing up. And if the king was into Persian pop, such a song would have resonated, would have connected with him. You know, songs do that. I was actually talking with a young man on Friday morning who just had his heart broken. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, I understand country music for the first time. As might King Ahasuerus, who was certainly feeling Cher's sorrow. I kind of imagine him in this text sitting in that same garden palace in his throne, thinking back to chapter 1, three years ago. Proverbs 23 asks these questions. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. The answer to who has sorrow, who has red eyes, who has wounds is our sad king here in Esther 2. There's actually many warnings in scripture about drunkenness and its results. The king got drunk at his party, made a bad call, if you recall, and ordered his wife Vashti to parade around in front of his drunken buddies like a trophy wife. And Vashti said something that this king was not used to hearing. She said, no. And in a fit of rage and with some encouragement from his buddies, some bad words, and he banished his queen forever. Now he's thinking, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you and you'd stay. I think Persia seems to be a lot like America. That's our first point. We live in a sad state. We need to acknowledge we live in a sad state. How many people do you know who live with regrets because of an act committed in a moment of impulse? Friends, that's why God, our creator, plants churches like Heart City Church here in this state. Perhaps you're online or you're visiting, you're exploring Christianity. God brought you here today because there's good news for you. The Christian message is that only the Christian can live without regrets. Only the Christian can live without regrets. That's actually what this book teaches. For homework, look up 2 Corinthians 7.10. Write that down. Look up 2 Corinthians 7.10. We find in the Word of God that we can live without regrets. How is that possible, Joel? Because we get to confess our sin confess our shame, and have it all washed away. Praise be to Jesus. We just sang about this. Yes, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. The Father sent his Son so that you could have your sin and your shame completely washed away. And all you have to do to be free of regret is take the plunge. That's all you have to do. Your other option is to pretend that God and his good news isn't good news. And you can remain in your regrets. You can sing the secular songs. You can try and find meaning in the moment apart from your maker. And the result will be this. More regret. You'll become like a Hazuerus, 
who I would describe as a beast in this passage. Beasts are what we become if we are not finding meaning in our maker. Read Psalm 73 later. Last week, you'll recall, I pointed out that God is never mentioned once in this entire book. Many of you may know that. But there's also no mention of the Persian pagan gods, no mention of their worship, no prayer. There is nothing spiritual in the book of Esther. And this is intentional by the author. Esther's Persia is not Daniel's Babylon. Persia is described as a thoroughly secularized state, and it's sad. You see the result. I want us to notice, have you noticed how in Persia everyone is fixated on outward appearances? A man is measured by his muscle and his money. A woman, what are they measured by? Beauty and sex appeal. Sound familiar? Isn't that our culture? We're more like these Persians than we are different. 2,500 years later, and we have not advanced. And when a culture is secular, when it rejects the spiritual, all that's left to focus on is the externals. Do you understand that? People become objectified. We look at people for what they have, and we don't look at people for who they are. And it creates a sad state where you can never find true meaning or joy. We were made in the image of our God who is spirit. If you don't get that, you will never find happiness or joy, and you'll only find regret and sorrow. It's a sad state. And those who don't have power end up exploited by it. And that's going to be a main theme today. We see that in the plan of these advisors who are like, how can we cheer up our king? He's in a bad mood. You don't want a bad mood king, a sad king. Hey, king, let's gather up all the best-looking young virgins, and we'll have a Miss Persian beauty contest. And you get to pick the winner. And she can replace Vashti. Did you notice all the qualities of these candidates? Beautiful, young, unmarried. All externals. No one thought about, oh, maybe a woman of character with inner virtues, which would really seem like an intelligent thing to do in light of Vashti's snub, right? Let's find someone who's submissive. No. And this idea pleased the king because he's an irrational beast. We need to get the picture very clearly in mind of the new queen's search. This is not Persia's Got Talent or Persian Idol, where folks are lining up hoping to get in. No, this is sex trafficking with the state's endorsement. No eligible girl is exempt. Your hat is thrown in the ring simply by virtue of you being in Persia. Think about that. Imagine you have an attractive young teenage daughter, because it's teenagers that are rounding up here. You have high hopes for her, right? Maybe plan, you envision a good life for her, and then the soldiers show up at your door. And you know you will likely never see her again because she's now the king's property, along with hundreds of other girls who may see the king one time and end up living the rest of their days as his property in their harem, in his harem. She'll spend a year being given cosmetics to beautify her for her one night and while they beautify, also they're brainwashing them. They exist solely to perform to please. Oh, and by the way, men are victims. They're equal opportunity. Does anybody here know what a eunuch is? When we read our Bibles, by the way, when we come to a word we don't know, we don't just think, well, God's giving me something from this, therefore it's... No, look it up. Find out what it means. 
I know I'm speaking to you as intelligent people here. If you don't know a word, if you don't know what eunuch means, look it up later. All I'll do is misquote Brian Adams for you. It cuts like a knife, but it does not feel all right, okay? <clears throat> this is the sadness of the secular state. Young men and young women. I was actually talking recently with a city official who actually told me locally human trafficking is on the rise in big time. It is sad but unsurprising. Our culture is so hypersexualized right now. Here's a few stats. 64% of 13 to 24-year-olds intentionally watch porn at least weekly. The average age of initial involvement in prostitution among girls is 14 to 18. And porn sites receive more traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. And if you're struggling, talk to me. Talk to me. There is help. You don't have to say suck. It's stuck in that. God rewards those who earnestly seek him, and you can be set free of that because you know it just builds shame upon shame upon shame. Friends, America, I say this because we're fast becoming Persia, where the secular is eclipsing the spiritual. As Christian morals wane, we're becoming a minority with less and less power. But this book says, it tells us we don't need power. God gave us Esther for such a time as this. We don't need power. What we need is to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and we can impact our culture. We see that in verses 5 to 7. My second point, we're introduced to a pair of prudent pilgrims, prudent pilgrims who exemplify this. Verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. We're introduced to a pair of seemingly insignificant Jews, God's people, Mordecai and Esther. They're powerless. This is the first mention of any, any of God's people this far in the book. And they're pilgrims. Notice how many times that phrase carried away keeps getting repeated. We're meant to see how passive and displaced these two are. Mordecai is so removed from Israel's glory days that he is displaced to the third degree. They're pilgrims in a pagan place, sojourners in a secular state. They're powerless people. Much more in the case of Esther, she doesn't even have a father or mother. Can you be any more powerless than a beautiful foreign orphan girl in a hypersexualized, secularized state? She has only two things going for her. She's got a wonderful father figure in her cousin Mordecai. And, well, scripture is very clear. She's a knockout. She is a knockout. A beautiful figure, lovely to look at. Beauty is a gift from God, but here, beauty does not seem to be a blessing when, when the soldiers come prowling. It's sad to live in a secularized culture where being pretty is preyed upon by predators. Like our day, where men are encouraged to love lust after bodies and not love people for their beings, not to truly love who they are. I belabor this, but I ask you, does this ever break your heart? Do we pray about this? I see him walking up and down the streets, abused. I can see it. 
I won't ask your thoughts on Beyonce as a person, but I will ask you to consider her song, Pretty Hurts, recorded about 10 years ago, where she's describing what it means for a young girl to be born pretty and then being subjected to a culture that judges her, puts expectations on her and her body. She writes this, the pain's inside and nobody frees you from your body. But it's the soul. It's the soul that needs surgery, not the body. She's describing how the beauty industry humiliates young women by judging them. Young girls are trained to seek outward perfection through pills, through surgery. And Beyonce cries out actually in this song, do you hear? What needs to be fixed is our souls. We need soul surgery. How many pretty teenage girls in Susa would be singing songs of soul surgery right now? Okay, Pastor Joel, why are you making the story of Esther so dark? Well, I do have the option of giving you the VeggieTales version of Esther, where Vashti, she snubs the king after he commands her to make him a sandwich at 3 a.m. in the morning. She says, you tell him to make his own sandwich. Friends, that may be fine for your kids, okay, at home. But our broken culture does not need the VeggieTales version from the pulpit. Friends, our Bible does not shy away from the dark realities of this world, so I won't. Because if I do, if I ignore the secular sickness, you won't understand the medicine that the Bible offers. If you don't see the cancer of our culture, we won't see our need for the surgery, the soul surgery that only the Bible can give us by the Spirit. And second, there's a lot of folks who are wrongly harsh to Mordecai and Esther. I'm taking a minority position in the, my own denomination here. You have actually feminists who condemn Esther because she's not like Vashti and standing up, right? But you actually have a whole lot of evangelicals, my brother pastors, who condemn Esther and Mordecai for failing to stand up for their faith. I have the commentaries, and we've got a long tradition. As Martin Luther and many reformers do not like the book of Esther, do not like her as a character in the Bible. They say that after Esther is taken, oh, look at her. She's winning Haggai's favor. She's embracing the king's plan for her life. She's eating the forbidden foods that Jews shouldn't eat. She'll then sleep with a man she's not married to. Oh, and Mordecai, he tells her to hide her identity, her ethnicity. He's saying, hide your faith, Esther. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Many evangelicals say this is questionable morality at best, Complete compromise at worst. I have commentaries that portray Esther as a sinner, as opposed to a victim. Now, I've never burned a book. I've come close to a few of my commentaries on Esther. What happens to this innocent, young teenage girl is not right. What would happen if she took a stand when they come knocking? The author shows Esther in a positive light. I read this book, I don't see any, any suggestion of wrongful motives. There's no description of the actual night when she's with the king. No graphic description. Where God closes his holy mouth, I encourage us to proceed no further. And by the way, this is bigger, what makes Esther such a dramatic book is the danger the Jewish people face in this time. 
It's a dangerous place in a secular culture to raise a covenant child. This is actually a repeated fact of history Mordecai would know. Over and over, evil people in power have tried to exterminate the Jews. Less than 100 years ago, Hitler was trying to do the very thing you're going to find Haman trying to do in the next chapter. Friends, Esther is a word from God saying it is dangerous to be a pilgrim people in a secular society. How then shall we live? If you're Mordecai, what would you tell your adopted daughter to do? You would tell her to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. And then you would do all you can to watch and care for her to the best of your ability, which you see him doing. He's out there watching every day as close as he can get. Mordecai's living out the pure religion of James 1.27, caring for widows in a sense because she's going to become probably and orphans. Esther is not Daniel, a man who has some agency, some power, even some pull with the king. Esther is a young girl in an ancient Middle East culture. How are women treated there? And she has something that men want. Esther is a victim, a covenant child who's been dealt a bad hand of cards, and she does the best she can with them. And I want to say two things to you if any of you here can relate to Esther. If you've been abused, we will listen to you, and we will believe you. We will hear you, and we will believe you. Jesus calls us, his church, to protect those who have been abused and who are powerless, like Mordecai. And by the way, our Savior, we serve him. He was also became an orphan and a victim on the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross shows that he can identify with any one of you who've been abused or orphaned. Which actually leads to the second point. God stays with Esther. And God will stay with you no matter how bad your situation is. God will stay with you. A good verse for us to reinforce this truth is our June memory verse. You'll see in our bulletin at the end of our text. I want to invite us to all read this together and continue to meditate on this. Let's uh, read Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is your helper, friend. And our last point is God's silent sovereignty. God's silent sovereignty in a secular society. I noted at the beginning, secular society wants us to focus on the externals. But if we take on an appearance-driven view of our world, we're going to miss out on God's quiet faithfulness to us in his quiet works. In his quiet works. God is working all things together for our good and for his glory. And most of history is him doing it very quietly. I know we tend to think of God's sovereignty in his flexing his muscles in loud, visible ways. You know, when God parts the Red Sea or when he floods the earth or rains fire down or brings the plagues on Pharaoh, we're like, behold our God. And we take comfort, right? How about when a ruler gets drunk and acts stupid? Or when a nation goes to war and it turns out bad? How about when our politicians pass a stupid law that impacts our lives, that hurts the powerless? Do we say, wow, our God is reigning right now? We don't do it very much. 
Esther is a corrective to that. The book of Esther said, whoa, don't miss out on God's silent sovereignty right now. Just because sinners in a secular society are doing all that they want, just because bad things are happening to us or to those we love, don't lose heart. God is with us and God is in complete control. That's the good news of Esther. Tim Keller says, God's silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not his abandonment. God is our helper, providentially working out the salvation of his people through drinking parties, through silly politicians, through girls he makes beautiful who have no power. Isn't that amazing? Friends, we need to keep singing, this is my father's world. And though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. We need to keep singing that song. Which I think Esther is singing when it's turn, her turn to call to believe that God is with her. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now this verse is actually cleverly set up. We already knew these details beforehand, but the author wants to surround Esther with all these men, men who have loved her and been taken away from her by God, and also men who want to use her to brainwash her. In a world ruled by men, Esther, daughter of Abihail, adopted daughter of Mordecai, takes the advice of Haggai and has her night with the king. And do you see in a world where women have no power, no agency, do you see her prudence? She's actively winning favor from people despite everything being against her, despite all the odds being against her. So her obedience to Mordecai, she obeys him. It's her humility before Haggai. It's her submission to this king. She's allowed to take in anything she wants. And externals, right? You know what she says? Hey, guy, you tell me whatever you think is best. You know the king better. Esther is wise. Esther is submissive. Esther is the anti-Vashti. She's also the first Peter 3 woman who, to her soon-to-be unbelieving husband. First Peter 3 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I'm not telling any women here or online that you should marry an unbeliever, nor am I telling you you should stay in an abusive situation. But in this society, in this situation, where Esther has no choice, she is a winsome wife. She is a brave beauty. And she wins the beast with her humility. As she humbles herself, she is exalted, just like we learned in James last week. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti, 
Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. (laughs) How about this for an ending? Could Mordecai or Esther have ever imagined this wonderful outcome after this? Can you imagine in this story, a foreign orphan girl is suddenly now queen? It's a rags to riches, a Cinderella story turnaround, right? They discover God's faithfulness. Now the drama is actually just beginning in Esther. But we already get this picture that God is at work. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that in your situation where you may feel powerless, helpless, that God is at work in your situation? A song came to my mind last night by the Beatles. I was watching the news. I was watching our president celebrating with the LGBT plus community, promoting once again the hypersexuality of our society. And he was promising a new law that was going to make things better for everyone. I heard Paul McCartney singing, It's getting better all the time. Remember that song? Keep singing, It's getting better all the time. And then in the background, you have John Lennon saying, It can't get no worse. (laughs) I think that's a lot of Christians today are singing Lennon's line (laughs) while the rest of the secular society is singing how better it's getting. Friends, that's not our line. John Lennon's is not our line. God is at work right now, despite all the appearances. You've got to stop looking at all the appearances. I actually think we're primed for revival. Just look around at our friends, our families, our neighbors, caught up in regret, singing all the secular songs that have no answer. They're primed for something better than the better this world can offer. And I think we have opportunity to win a lot of favor of our neighbors by being wise as serpents harmless as doves. We can all be instruments in God's hands as prudent pilgrims in our day, and we don't need power. We don't need power. We need to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, trusting that he is with us even when everything in our situation right now in front of us and the windshield looks the opposite. Jesus is with us. Look here at how beauty tames the beast. Did you see that? Our chapter began with him plundering indiscriminately from his own populace. But once he marries Lady Wisdom, he suddenly becomes a good king again, generous to all his subjects. And this middle phrase, a remission of taxes, is actually amazing. The Hebrews here is tricky. That's why they translate this. But this is more than a tax break, all right? This is not a tax break. It literally reads in the Hebrew, a causing to rest. A causing to rest. That's why translators don't know what to do with it. In the seventh year of his reign, in the sabbatical year, King Ahasuerus throws a feast for his purified bride, pours out gifts to all his people, and gives them rest. Here in a story where God seems silent, where God seems absent, we actually get a dim picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in this pagan, beastly, Gentile king. Is this not remarkable? So as I close, I just want to say, if a Gentile king is willing to scour his empire in search of a bride, call her to his palace, purify her, place a crown on her head and throw a feast for her, how much more should you walk out of here marveling at what our greater king, our Lord Jesus, has done 
and seeking us out today. We who are orphans, we who are not beautiful to begin with, were called to his palace where he washed us with his own blood, clothed us in white robes, gave us a crown of life, and has invited us to a feast of which this is just a pointer. Isn't that an amazing thing to ponder, the love of your Lord Jesus? If your soul is weak, if it's weary, in your sojourning, just pause and stop and marvel at how much Jesus loves you. Whether you're single or married, the glory of your life is you're on your way to a wedding. Okay? You're on your way to a wedding. And you keep that in mind, when you keep looking at Jesus, the things of this secular world are going to start to fade away. And you actually discover you're already reigning with him even now. Isn't that glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word from Esther. Thank you, Lord, for hope in our own day where we see so much, so much sorrow and sadness. And we come to you right now because all of us have been distorted. All of us have been hurt and broken and, and led into sin and shame, Lord. And we don't know how to escape it apart from your help. Father, will you pour out your spirit on us? And will you help us to engage, to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves? Help us to be beginners in elementary school when it comes to doing evil things. In fact, that we won't even know how to do it anymore. Lord, will you take these things away that we may begin to live in such a way as pleases you and we can't do it apart from your help. If there are any here who are hurting and have been abused, feel powerless right now, I pray that you will bring your presence into their life in more profound and real ways. Open their eyes, open the eyes of their heart to see you're at work, Heavenly Father, and that you are near and you'll never leave them or forsake them. And Father, may we go out of here with eyes also to see those around us who've been caught up in this secular society. We pray for spiritual cracks so that we may be able to bring the good news of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you, Father, you've been so good to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Nobody has loved us more or better than you. Help us not to ever lose a sight of you during our pilgrimage here on earth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.